Happy New Year and welcome to the best of the joys of binge reading for 2022. We're presenting the top 15 shows for the year as selected by you, our listeners. And from previous years, I know that this is one of the most popular shows every year. So it's wonderful to do it for you. I'm Jenny Wheeler, the host of the show. And first of all, I'd like to thank you for being part of our growing audience this year. This year, we reached the 250 episode mark, a great achievement, and we wouldn't have done it without your appreciative listening. We've divided the show into two parts because 15 episodes is too long to listen to in one go. First part, with eight of the shows that are selected, will run this week, and then the second will run in two weeks in mid-January to give us plenty of summer relaxing time. You know that I treasure all the authors we talk to, and I never attempt to pick and choose winners. So this selection is based solely on the numbers of people who listened to the shows that ran between December 1, 2021 and December 1, 2022. Taking those dates allows us to compile and edit the show in time for posting on the first Tuesday in January 2023. To give you the flavour, we've included selected highlights of each show so you can discover new authors you might have missed first time round or find books you might want to get into in 2023. I'm thrilled once again at the generous blend of genres and locations represented in the best of results. Mysteries, romances, historicals, thrillers, and even an outlier non-fiction title all have featured in the top 15. And just as our listeners hail from all over the world, so do the authors you listen to, with the US, the UK, and Australian authors all well represented. So let's get into it. The first list runs this week, the second one mid-January. Here it is, the best of the joys of binge reading, 2022, part one. Contemporary author Barbara Freethy is an Amazon KDP best-selling author of all time with a total of 12 million books sold in multiple languages. And that was just when I spoke to her six months ago. She's a master of thrilling mysteries, romantic suspense and heartwarming romance. Barbara was a successful, traditionally published author who made an early jump to indie, that's independent publishing, and she's found that being an indie totally suits her talent and style. That's particularly so because traditionally the big five publishing houses generally only handle one book a year, and Barbara writes much faster than one book a year. I asked her about that process. It goes without saying that you'd write highly entertaining and addictive books. But even so, how do you account for that brilliant success? I think there are a lot of factors that have gone into it. But I do think that publishing on a regular basis, being really consistent with what I write and meeting the reader's expectations has been really helpful for me. And so there's just a lot of different factors. I think I I put a lot of time in, but then a lot of authors put a lot of time in. So I don't do anything that much differently, but I think I've got a good head for business, the business of publishing, as well as for the writing. I think that's been helpful in my pursuit of an indie career. Yes. You write in the genres of romantic suspense and contemporary romance. Those are your main focuses. 
and you're firmly established in that as a reigning queen in that area. I really appreciate with digital now and with indie that I can write a book and bring it out in four months for my audience. So that's been great. It's valuable too, because you get the instant feedback from how the readers are receiving it. You don't have to wait two years and have almost gone cold on the idea. Right. I mean, in traditional publishing also, there's so much dependency on the print book. And when you write a series, it's very difficult for any bookstore to carry all the books in the series in their store. They just don't have shelf space for it. So in the digital world, it's much easier to write a series because the reader can get all the books in the series at the time that they want them. When you're doing it in traditional and it's you're writing a series, which I have done for traditional publishers, I'd have a book out and then the second one wouldn't come out for a year and a half. And by that time, the first book was gone and readers couldn't find it. So now it's just, it's both not only just traditional, it's also print versus digital, having the option to shelve an unlimited number of books in any of the online bookstores has allowed writers to allow readers to binge read, which we couldn't necessarily do before. That Netflix phenomenon of people binge watching was very much being transferred into reading with the digital age, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It's, it's probably the number one difference is that readers can get all the books in a series and read them all at one time. And I know readers that'll wait until there's two or three books out before they'll start a series simply because they want to binge. So I think that series have taken off in this era of binge everything, binge watching, binge reading. That's been, that's been really good. The other great thing about indie publishing for Barbara is that her books tend to cross the usual genre boundaries between romance and mystery, and traditional publishing finds that complexity a little harder to handle, as she explains. I had a lot of publishers say, your books are hard to cover because they're a little bit of everything. They're emotional, and then they're funny, and then they're sad, and then they're mysterious, but they're not dark. I like to write between the lines. I feel like my writing is more interesting when it's more got more dimensions to it. I don't like to just write to a particular trope. I'm sure I use the tropes in my writing, but I don't come at it from that point of view, or I think a lot of writers specifically say, this is my trope, and I'm writing to it whereas I'll be much more interested in who the characters are and then what else can I throw at them? What else can I do to make this twisty or surprising or different? So yeah, I definitely march to my own drummer in terms of how I write, but it worked so far. And I think that the readers really appreciate it when there is depth to the story. So that's what I like to do. Magical mystery author Heather Weber lives in Ohio, but a visit to the South many years ago captivated her and many of her mysteries reflect Southern charm, food, family, and a light dusting of the supernatural. And as she explains, it was an unusual event that led her to get into writing right from the start. She tells us the story. It was a dream that led me to writing. It was a literal dream. I had woken up one night with this entire plot line in my head, and I told my husband, I said, I had this amazing dream. I, I can see all the characters. I know what happens throughout the whole story. And I said, it would be a great movie. And then I said, no, no, it has to be a book because it, there was just too much there. And he looked at me and said, why don't you write it? I didn't have any writing experience. I love to read, but I didn't have a background in writing. But I think I was young enough and naive enough. And I had this burning story in my head that I had to get it out. So I was like, okay, all right, I'll do that. 
And I wrote it. It was 460 pages of family and love and loss and a little bit of magic. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so I sent that off to editors and agents and I got rejected across the board. And so I gave myself five years. I said, okay, so that book's not going to work. It's up in my closet collecting dust where it still remains to this day because I can't seem to get rid of it because I love it. But I gave myself five years to get published. I figured that was enough time to really learn the craft of writing, which, you know, it really is not long enough to learn the craft of writing. That's a lifelong process. But it gave me a foundation to do that, to learn the ins and outs of publishing, how to format a novel, that kind of thing. I wrote probably five or six books in that time. And it wasn't until six months before my deadline that I got the call that I was going to be published. So I really cut it close. That's fantastic. And all that time you were also a full-time mum. Yeah. That really takes some dedication to keep going when you've got so much else. You could make excuses that you just didn't have time and that kind of thing. I guess that it might have been a bit tempting sometimes to do that. Sometimes it's still tempting, let me tell you. (laughs) But I think because I gave myself that timeline, that was the key for me. I gave myself five years and I was going to see that through, even during those times where I wanted to quit. That's what really pushed me through. That's great because the next question I was going to ask you, and it's one that I ask everybody really, is what do you credit with the quote secret of your success? It's truly just persistence. It's a little bit of stubbornness too, actually. When those first rejections came in, I was just so upset by them, even though it is a business and you have to learn that it is a business and it's not personal. And when your writing is rejected, I kind of got a little chip on my shoulder. I will do this. I can do this. I know I can do this. I want to do this. And that's a big thing is the wanting to do it. How badly you want something kind of drives how much work you're willing to put into it. Persistence is really key. Lynette Eason is a best-selling author of inspirational romantic adventures with more than 50 books to her credit. I asked her how it all came together. Lynette... The series are generally adventure with suspense and built into them a lot of former military heroes or people in the helping and rescuing professions. Is this how you started out or did all that develop gradually as you went along? No, I started with the romantic suspense genre and then stuck with it ever since. But that was what I was interested in writing and I didn't see any reason to write anything else. <laughs> Was there an epiphany moment where you thought, I've just got to get that book written, something you'd always wanted to do, or was it something you just fell into somehow? I know that there was an epiphany moment. I know that when I was growing up, I always loved to read suspense, like the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and Alfred Hitchcock and Agatha Christie. I loved all of that stuff. But as far as trying to write, I tried to write a book when I was in the eighth grade and gave up because it was just too hard. (laughs) But I've always done really well with writing in school and stuff. And I always always had really good compliments on creative writing exercise and stories and that kind of thing. So I... I think when my daughter was born and my husband traveled a lot with his job and I was lonely and I thought, you know, this might be a good time to try to write a book because I kind of always wanted to, but I just never really, you know, like I said, eighth grade gave up. 
So when he would be gone, I would sit down and I call it talking to the voices in my head. And (laughs) I just pounded out a story. And I knew that I wanted to write suspense. I didn't know really it was romantic suspense that I wanted to write until after I read uh, D. Henderson's book, Danger in the Shadows. I was like, okay, I guess that was the epiphany. I was like, this is what I want to write. Yeah. And so that's just kind of tried to come up with that type of story. And yeah. It's fantastic. Now, the most recent one that that you've got out at the moment is Life Flight. And it's the first book in a new series called Extreme Measures. And the hero of that is Penny, a medical rescue helicopter pilot who gets stuck on a mountain in a bad storm where there's a serial killer loose. How do you keep the action moving? Oh, gosh. You know, it's funny. Like, I don't plot out my stories completely. I just start writing and see where the characters and the action and all that kind of takes me. When things get bad, I try to figure out what can make it worse and, you know, and try to work that into the story somehow. And the readers are going, can this get any worse? And then, oh, yes, it actually can. So it keeps readers awake and on the edge of their seat and keeps them coming back for more. I guess they really enjoy it. That's great. Now, the series before this one, because I started to dip into that series as well, Danger Never Sleeps. And I must admit, I got really hooked into Danger Never Sleeps. And you've got a four-book series there, and they're all ex-military who've worked together in Afghanistan in one way or another in a military deployment. But now they're back in the US and trying to settle down into normal lives. And various things that happened in Afghanistan impacting on their lives as they try and get back to some normality. Now, in book two of the series, I was quite struck because Heather goes sandboarding in the Bamiyan Mountains. Now, actually, we had New Zealand troops deployed and they were stationed, their headquarters for part of the time was the Bamiyan Mountains. And I'd never heard of anybody going sandboarding there. And I thought, wow, you've got the sort of detail that makes things come alive. And I wondered how you managed to get so close to the action. Do you have family that are involved in the military or how do you do your research? Honestly, I have a couple of acquaintances that served there and have been home. And one of those has turned into a good friend. And he gave me a lot of little details that only somebody who'd served in the military would know about. Yeah. And in the first book, in active defense, I simply did some research on, okay, you have all these people serving in the military and they can't be on 24-7. They got to have some fun in their lives or you just, you're going to yeah. go nuts. Yeah. So I, like, what do they do? And so I started asking around and I started doing some research online and I found that they actually do go do fanboarding in these mountains. And I was like, oh, well, that's really cool. My character's going to do that. So you haven't actually, for example, flown helicopters yourself. <laughs> No, no, I have not flown a helicopter, but I have an FBI agent buddy who has, and he (laughs) has given me all the details for all the helicopter stuff. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Do you have an ideal output in terms of word count or the number of books you want to produce a year? What's your production schedule like? I do have a word count that I strive to reach each day. I don't always do it. So therefore, when the deadline creeps up, I find myself in panic mode, such as right now. But life does interfere sometimes. I have family and other obligations and I have 
a niece and nephew that I love to keep up with. They're seven years old and twins. And so my kids are older. I write every day, whether it's 50 words or a thousand or 2000. At some point, I am on my laptop just about every single day trying to reach that word count because I know if I don't, it's going to be more the next day (laughs) and more the next day and more the next day. So, So yeah, I do. I work every day. I usually work holidays, weekends, you name it. There'll be times I'll take a couple of days off to do something fun with family, but I'm an empty nester. My husband works a lot of hours and he's pastor of a church and he works with the ministry in the Dominican and a ministry in Africa and he's gone quite a bit. And it's just me and the dog. I enjoy what I do and I try to get done what I need to do. Yes. If I don't, I have to do it at some point. You've got quite a sense of social justice. And in the series like Elite Gardeners and Women of Justice, there is that sense coming through of wanting to see right prevail. Tell us a bit about that aspect of your work. Has that always been an important thing to you? Yeah, I'm big on justice. <laughs> I love that the bad guys get taken down. I love that when somebody does wrong, that the characters that I create have this sense of justice in that we're going to fix this, we're going to make it right. And it might be kind of a control thing too, because (laughs) you see so much that's wrong in this world. You see so many things that you can't do anything about. As much as you, you, you would love to solve the crisis of hunger and homelessness and all of these things in the world. And you can do your part, but you're not going to fix it. (laughs) And I think in my stories, I always have that happily ever after. I'm not saying it's cheesy and everything always works out in the end, but for the most part, I give my readers happy ending because that's why they read. And most people want the happy ending. I want the happy ending. (laughs) And so I just love that I I can do that. I get to control it. (laughs) (laughs) I like to see the little person become the hero. I love to see characters change and grow and, and learn about themselves. Not just outwardly, but inwardly. Really learn something about themselves that makes them a better person. Yeah, that's great. The other aspect of this, your publishers, mainly faith-based publishers like Life Inspired Romance and Rebel, and there are faith aspects of your stories, not in a heavy-handed way. I wonder how you keep the right balance between introducing those things. Is that joke that everybody calls out on God when they're faced with tough situations. But how do you do that in a way that isn't going to turn people off? Well, I don't like to preach. I mean, there's preaching and there's preaching. I go to church and I know I'm going to get preached out in church. (laughs) You know, Uh, when I'm reading a book, I don't want to read a sermon. My first goal is to be entertained. And as a writer, I want my readers to be entertained. I don't want them to be flipping pages going, all right, I want to get to the action. I want to get to the story. I can read about this other stuff, that kind of thing. So I want my characters If they're Christians, if they have a faith element, I want them to live it naturally. I want it to come through as a part of their character in that it's very natural. It doesn't come across as I'm like trying to force it or trying to fake it because nobody is going to respond to that. Not positively anyway. In my stories, I try to think, okay, if I put myself in that situation where, you know, somebody's trying to kill me. 
I'm going to be praying a lot, probably. Even if I don't have really strong faith element, it's going to make me think about things, right? Yeah, yeah. There is that <laughs> saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. That- yeah, very true, very true, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Christian White is an Australian author, screenwriter and producer whose award-winning first novel, The Nowhere Child, has already attracted a major screen deal. His latest book, the psychological thriller Wild Place, raises a question as old as human life itself. Why do good people do bad things? He co-wrote a Netflix show, Clickbait, which went to number one in 41 countries. And yet he says it took him a long time to get into writing thrillers because he didn't think he was clever enough to do them well. Here's Christian telling the story. When I first started out, I wanted to write comedy. You know, I fancy myself a comedy writer and I tried it and I just realised, oh, I'm really, really bad at writing comedy. And so I tried all these sort of... um, you know, I really like horror, so I dabbled with horror and I sort of tried different genres and and weirdly it took me a long time to get around to that thriller, mystery, crime genre, mostly because I didn't think I was clever enough, strangely. I have always loved reading them, so looking back it's a bit of a no-brainer, but I thought, no, I don't think I can do it, I'm not clever enough. And then as soon as I sort of started dabbling and then and realised, oh, actually... I'm kind of good at this. I was terrible at all these other things that I tried, but I'm kind of good at this. And then I leaned further and further in and then realised it was just my space. So how interesting that it took you quite a while to find that. And when you say you didn't feel clever enough, are you referring there to having to do lots of plot twists and that kind of thing? Yeah, I always thought, you know, a good mystery, it needs a really great twist, but the twist can't come out of nowhere. It's got to be built in and it needs to keep audiences guessing and there needs to be twists and turns. And I just thought, oh, I don't think my brain can do that. And what I realised was my first drafts are always terrible, but so much of what I do is going back and making it seem like I had all the answers from the beginning. I think I thought that you had to write it from beginning to end. And as soon as I discarded that notion, it all fell into place. I think it was, sorry if I'm wrong about this, but I think it was P.T. Anderson, the director, who, when he was talking about writing, he talks about it as if you're ironing the sleeve of a shirt. So you don't go, this is going to be hard to just do, you know, without the visual, but you don't start from the shoulder, go right down to the wrist and be done with it. You sort of start at the shoulder, go a little bit down, then go back to the shoulder and go a little bit further. And writing... I mean, that's so spot on and that describes my process so well. So much of it is just building and building and building and making it seem like you're cleverer than you really are. Look, it's interesting that you say that because I think writers do sometimes get that feeling when they're two-thirds or so into a book. They get that panicky feeling of, this isn't good enough, I don't know what's supposed to be happening. They almost punish themselves Mm. about that feeling of uncertainty. But it sounds like you've learned to really write it. Yeah, my my process is, and now I'm on to my third book, so it's, it's really a process, is that I will sit down, you know, before I start writing at all, I will come up with what I think is this ironclad plot. You know, it's really great, it's got these cool twists and turns, and then around halfway through, every single time I realise that there's no way to say this that isn't really pretentious, but, you know, your characters do take on a mind of their own and a life of their own. And you realise, usually I realise about halfway through, I've got to know them in a way that now I know they won't do the things I want them to do in the second half. At that time, I generally do two things. I Firstly, I always follow the character that always beats the plot for me. I might have this really amazing scene I'm building to, but 
know, I think characters are allowed to do stupid things because we all do stupid things. But when I'm reading a book or watching a show or something and a character does something so plot serving that you can see the writer's movements behind it. And whenever that happens, I completely emotionally disengage. So I'm really about just following the character. And generally they lead you to very interesting and and unexpected places. And the other secret weapon I have is my wife. Some I'll do a first draft and then I'll give it to her first, even before my publishers. And I'll say, hey, the ending is terrible. Can you come up with all the twists and just give me credit for it? And that's what happened. In my second book in particular, I'll obviously won't do spoilers, but there's a really, it was a very ambitious twist. I spent a long time trying to make that twist work and I reached a point where I was about to give up and that would mean missing deadlines. It would mean everything falling apart, you know, and I, so I finally, after weeks, talked to some about it. And, you know, I said, here's what I want to do. And here's the problem. And she was quiet for probably 12 seconds. And then she came up with all the answers. So really, she's definitely my secret weapon. If we ever get divorced, my career will go down the tube. (laughs) (laughs) That's gorgeous. You seem to have also a fascination with the question of how well we know one another. Even in intimate relationships, people hold deep secrets from those closest to them. And I wondered if that too was something that you'd grown up with somehow being aware of that, that there was a lot of stuff going on underneath that maybe they weren't coming clean about. Yeah, I mean, I think I think on a subconscious level, I must have always feared this idea that you know, those closest to us will be carrying some secret or do something so huge that it will unpick your relationship. But I didn't realise that about myself until really I wrote three books about that very thing. And even the TV show Clickbait is about that. You know, I co-wrote a film called Relic and even that goes into that territory. And it's really funny. I think that when you, you know, when I'm writing... I, do, I am aware of the themes and I do start with certain questions, but only on a really surfacey level. Generally, all the themes just emerge naturally, all the true themes. And I really didn't think about it until the first book came out and people started to talk about you know, those questions and, oh, you must be interested in that. And I thought, yeah, I guess I am. And now looking back, there are all these themes, these reoccurring themes that I think each of my three books, by design, very different. They all very much feel there's, there's similar themes tying them all together. And I think that 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 was completely subconscious, but clearly it's a deep, it's a deep fear I have. And I think it's because, I mean, really, I can't think of anything worse. If a serial killer came in and killed me, yes, that would be horrible, of course. But what if you found out, you know, your your wife had killed someone? It's this deep, deep fear because I think we set up these sort of necessary truths in life, you know, where you have an idea of your parents and they have to be your idea of it. It's a necessary truth. When you find out that's not the case, it just, life can unravel very quickly. And I guess that's very scary. Although having said that, it's not like that happened to me. I I don't know what I'm working through, but clearly, (laughs) clearly, clearly there's something going on. Historical fiction author Meg Waite Clayton's latest book, The Postmistress of Paris, has had a tremendous reception. It's a thrilling World War II story about rescuing artists from Vichy, France, with a host of international reviewers eagerly anticipating it and hyping it up before it even went on sale. But as Meg explains, she's already served a long apprenticeship to get to that place. 
I did. This is novel number eight. It's here in the United States, the first one that's been reviewed by the New York Times. So that's my long apprenticeship. But <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. It's been a lovely run and a lovely career. And I feel like it's just keeps growing in a lovely way. That's wonderful. Look, the central character of The Postmistress, in the book she's called Nane, she's a wealthy American who stays on in France after war is declared in 1939, partly because she feels it's her home. She's been living there for quite some time. And also because she has this lovely idea, or some might say silly idea, that she quite wants to make a difference in the war effort. And she was based on a real person named Mary Jane Gold, who I had never heard of before your book. Can you tell us a bit about Mary Jane? Yes, absolutely. I will say, for starters, that the character of Nane is inspired by Mary Jane, but not exactly based on her for a reason I'll tell you about. But the Mary Jane Gold was a real Chicago heiress who was indeed living in Paris when Hitler invaded. And she decided to stay. She was an extraordinary woman. She flew airplanes before people did. And she chose to live outside of the normal parameters of somebody who was raised in her kind of wealth and privilege. And she did indeed stay in France and help Varian Fry's effort to rescue artists and writers and other great thinkers from France after Hitler invaded. She She's a, a wonderful person. She, she wrote a memoir herself called Crossroads Marseille 1940, which you can still get in French. It's out of print in English. But one of the main differences with Mary Jane Gold is that her real love story was she fell in love with a Marseille mobster, basically a gangster, whose name was Killer, not because he was killing people, but because he killed the English language. It's a lovely story, but it didn't fit into the parameters of what I was trying to do, illuminating this effort to rescue people. And so that's why Nene is inspired by rather than based upon Mary Jane Gold. Interesting little detail about flying planes, though, because Nene does fly planes as well, doesn't she? She does. There are many things that Nene and Mary Jane Gold have in common, including that Vega Gull, which was the real airplane that Mary Jane Gold flew, and the dog Dagobert, who barks madly whenever Hitler's name is mentioned. I'd like to have made that up, but that was the real Mary Jane Gold's dog did that. It was too beautiful to leave out. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Now, you mentioned the name Varian Fry. He plays a very important role in the story. He is like the secret US coordinator for these people that they're getting them out as refugees before the Germans really manage to clamp down on the country while they're still in transition to the Vichy France. And I had never heard of him either. I didn't realise until I read your footnote at the back that he was a real person. So tell us about him too. He was indeed a real person. He was uh, involved in organizing this effort from the United States to send somebody over to take visas and help get people like Picasso and Matisse and Chagall out of France. Hannah Arendt was one of the names on his list. And they couldn't figure out anybody else to do it. So he said, fine, I'll go. He spoke French. He spoke German. He was a writer. but And so it was totally outside of his bailiwick, but he went to France and stayed far longer than he was meant to and really helped rescue about 2,000 people before he was booted from France. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And the surrealists also play a big part in the story. I wondered why you chose particularly the surrealist movement. Nane is very much involved in the 
Paris art world before the Germans take over, isn't she? She is. I I will read you a quick line from the very first, I think it's the second paragraph of the book, which uh, is Nene's thoughts on surrealism. She's going to see this exhibit. She describes it as 300 artworks depicting gigantic insects, bizarre floating heads, and dismembered or defiled bodies she knew were meant to be thought-provoking, but always left her feeling unsophisticated and far too American. Midwestern, not even from Chicago, but from Evanston. That's really how I feel about the surrealist of art. I found it daunting before I researched for this book. Researching for this book gave me a great appreciation for what they were doing with surrealist art. Nonetheless, I don't think I could hang most of it on my walls. It would give me nightmares. The reason I chose surrealism is because it was the art of the time, and many of the artists who were rescued in Varian Fry's effort were indeed surrealists, so that's period appropriate. A lot of the real-life artists have parts in the book as well. There's a couple that have reasonably prominent roles, André Breton and Max Ernst, for, for starters, so that obviously was also part of the development of the story. Yes, exactly. I turned to Max Ernst because he was somebody who really was at Camp de Mille, which was this French internment camp in outside of Aix-en-Provence, where the French first, even before Hitler invaded, interned Jewish refugees, feeling fearful that they would be, you know, spies for the Reich. And so Max Ernst was imprisoned there not once but twice, and his story in that regard is really interesting and very demonstrative. When they let him go finally, He could have left and gone to the United States or someplace else, but instead he chose to stay in France. He just could not imagine that they would arrest him again or anything bad would happen to him. And so he was arrested again and put in the camp. So that's part of the reason he's there, because his real story is something I can thread through. And... Uh, Similarly with André Breton, he was the leader of the surrealist movement. He's a really, really fascinating character. And he did indeed live at Villa Herbel with Mary Jane Gold and Varian Fry during this period that I write about with his wife and child while he was waiting to try to be gotten out of France. So he was both a great character and true to the real history, which I always like to be as true to the real history as I can. So it's interesting. I didn't realize that Mary Jane had gone to the South and actually lived there with Varian. So that's very much true to your story. Yes, she is indeed the one in real life who rented Villa Herbel, which was this ramshackle old villa outside of Marseille where many of the people involved in this effort lived together. And that was one of the things that really drew me to this story was they lived together, they threw these salons with artists and they played these crazy surrealist games together and they somehow or another managed to have just this incredibly good-spirited time together, actually fun, while at the same time risking their lives in order to help save people. So it was such an extraordinary story that once I learned of it, it just called to me to write a novel about it. Dare I ask, what happened to Mary Jane in the end? She, the real Mary Jane, was eventually booted out of France uh, and went back home for the rest of the war, went back to the United States for the rest of the war. After the war was over, she returned to France and lived the rest of her life there. If anybody's interested in hearing more about her, there are a wonderful series of interviews with her on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum uh, site from when she is toward the end of her life. And they're really extraordinary. She is such an amazing character. And it's lovely to hear her talk about her story in her own words. Historical romance queen Stephanie Lawrence 
has been in the top 100 romance lists of the years many times over. She's one of the most popular Regency romance authors of all time, with over 70 historical romances, including 40 New York Times bestsellers. Her latest book, Friends, Foes and Lovers, is set in a little later period than Regency, in the Victorian age, but I started by asking her about the special popularity of Regency romance. Regency just fascinates people, doesn't it? Why do you think that is? I've always thought it was actually because of the peculiar, you know, when you actually got deeply into it, yes, there's all the carriages and the balls and the ball gowns. There's a lot of colour in it, which is different to now. So that is an attractive thing, I think, and it's actually very visually colourful, which helps when you're writing. And you can make it exciting, adventurous, quite dramatic. But underneath it all is the fact that at that time socially, in the upper echelons of society, there was a time when you could actually start to marry for love. And that particular band of society didn't prior to, say, 1800. But through the Romantic movement, which was very late uh, 1700s, and in through the Napoleonic uh, Wars and so on, there came this actual questioning of marrying for love instead of just marrying for dynastic purposes or for convenience or, you know, whatever, but not for love. Love was actually not a criteria for marriage in that band of society prior to about then. So it means that, you know, the females in particular can actually make a decision. Do they want to marry for love? Do they want to marry not for love? Do they want to marry at all? Because, again, if you're dealing with the upper echelons, then the women didn't have to marry. It was expected, but if they really, really wanted to dig in their heels, they generally could not marry and go and do something else with their lives. And that is really the same questions that women of today, or certainly the last few decades, have also had to face. What do I do with my life? I actually have a choice. So I think that echo has always made that time period particularly useful, whereas it's less so in the Victorian era where I'm now writing. And it's harder to generate that resonance with modern times. That's a fascinating answer and it's one that I never ever really thought about. So there was an evolution because obviously the Victorians are after the Regency. So that little burst of freedom, so to speak, gets squashed in the Victorian age. It does, exactly. That's right. And so, you know, the Regency and the early post-Regency, like the 1830s, for instance, before Victoria came to the throne and even just after, before she really had an impact and Victorian society evolved. Yeah, that band of time between, say, 1805 to about early 1840s has a different feel to it socially when it comes to love and marriage in the aristocracy. Wow, that's fascinating. 
Look, over this wonderful body of work, you've got a number of series, but one name stands out, and that's the Sinsters. More than half of your books are related to that particular family. And the most recent one, the one we must talk about today, is Friends, Foes and Lovers. That's number 10. And this is the next generation of Sinsters. You've had a lot of books, 20 books, with the first generation. This is the next generation down. So tell us about the differences. Actually, it feeds in wonderfully to your explanation about the Regency and Victorians. Is it different to do the two books because they're in different generations? Well, yeah, there definitely is a distinctly different feel and I've explored to some extent that in order to find the opening for a romance, then particularly from the woman's point of view because I tend to write very strong female characters, I've had to look more deeply into other things for the situations where a woman would be more able to, as I said, face those questions. And that's, for instance, in Friends, Foes and Lovers, I have what is essentially a runaway heiress who has taken refuge in a very eccentric country estate, an estate that was run by very eccentric older women who were, both of them actually, were widows. When they die, she remains as the chatelaine of the estate. Sinster is the one who inherits the estate, a sinister male. And the next book after that, which is coming out in the middle of the year, the woman is running a steel mill in Sheffield. You know, so I've had to go out further in society rather than just staying in the London ballrooms and the social circles of London. I've had to really go out and find different areas in order to actually evolve a really more interesting type of romance. Friends, Foes and Lovers is set in Nottinghamshire, isn't it? Towards the north of the country. And she is Scottish in her family relationships. So I did wonder if that also helped to free it up a little bit from that London ton sort of situation. Exactly, that's right. Some of the women, although they may be well-born, they're not your typical London miss. The one I'm writing now is very funny because she is a London miss, but she's taken a different tack. She's actually very outrageous when she's in London and she's very much a country uh, managing a big estate when she's at home. I have to keep looking for these unusual situations where I can actually have a very strong female character. Is the way that men and women interact in this period with the next generation, very different from how their parents interacted. This is now pretty much edging into mid-Victorian and it does seem to be, yes, that men and women lived very separate lives, far more so, I think, than in the Regency, for instance, where um, certainly, as I said, I tend to write about the aristocracy or certainly wealthy people, that the males did not so much interest themselves in what we might call work of any sort. And that's what the hero here in, in Friends, Foes and Lovers is also addressing. He doesn't have any really deep interest in anything, whereas his brothers and sisters and so on, they all have something that they're actually doing with their life, a purpose in their life. 
And this is, I think, what has changed. By the time you get into the Victorian era, I find that having a purpose in life, particularly for the men, is has become more clear that they really need to have something else, not just sitting at home counting the investments coming in. You know, that's not quite the same. They could be interested in investments and in actually investing in companies and so on. That would be acceptable. But just sitting at home, being nothing and using the money doesn't work anymore for them. They can't spend all their time riding their estates and not contributing to the wider society anymore. Yeah. Uh, So that has changed. I think women always did have a role to play because, of course, they always managed the household, they managed the family, they managed this and that. So for the woman, it's not such a big change, but for the men, I think it is, it has been. And therefore, they're not necessarily spending all their time together. Yes. Do you think that the expectations of readers have changed over the time that you've been writing? Some yes, and some no, because... I still find that there's the same older readership that was always there. I don't mean older in terms of age so much as the people who were heavily into romance in the 1990s, they're still the same. And some of them might have been quite young in the 1990s, so they're still around. So that group is still coming through. But they're is a newer group and because I still get people who have only just started on my books. Most of them, it may be their first romance that they've ever read and a lot of them are still, oh, oh, this is what it's all about. Oh, I never knew. And so you get that newness of people who are coming to them and what they're getting out of it I think is more not just the romance but the adventure or the other thing that's in there. All my books have some other thing. There are very few books of mine that are solely about the relationship. Yes. I think there's one, maybe two. Two. There's two. There's usually some other major plot line running through it. So I think because of that, my books sort of are still spanning the the reader expectations. Yeah, that's great. I wondered with your very intense scientific background, and you were in cancer research as well, whether this last couple of years observing from afar what's been happening with the pandemic, if you had any little pangs of, oh, I'd love to be in that field still because there's so much going on. No, quite the opposite. I was very (laughs) glad not to have been in that field. I think the pressures must have been significant. I must admit, having worked in pathology labs and, in fact, developed pathology tests myself, I really take my hat off to the people who were running those labs. That must have just been so, so challenging. Yeah, it is useful because, of course, I can, and my husband's also in science, so both of us can analyse all the data that comes out in possibly rather a more detailed way than most people. You have been doing that? Oh, yes, absolutely. In this latest wave, as always, I've got a graph going that I chart the relevant figures every day just to convince myself that yes all is going as it should which it is so that's good yeah that's wonderful looking at your wider career is there one thing that you might have done that you'd credit with being quotes the secret of your success what would it be secret of my success 
I would have to say probably learning to plot, (laughs) 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 which I did not do for the first, I don't know how many books, but after the second book for the Americans, which would have been book number 10 by that stage, I realised that there had to be an easier way. (laughs) I can obviously write stories, but surely I can be more efficient, if you like, because the idea of writing a lot of stuff and then going back over it and rewriting it again and then rewriting it again and et cetera, et cetera, it wasn't a very efficient process at all. And so I gradually over the years trained myself using other people's different plans, if you like. I gradually taught myself how to plot for me. And I think that is one of the things that allowed me to keep writing for so long. Yes. You know, and and enjoying it still. That I've actually slimmed the whole process down so that I'm a lot more in control and I don't do a lot of stuff that is thrown out in the wider scheme of things. That book number 10 sounds like it might be significant because I did read somewhere you quoted as saying that your advice to beginner writers was not to expect anything to happen until they'd pretty well got to book six and maybe even to book 10. Yes, that's right. When you actually look back at people's careers who have had a long career in writing, not people who were just flashes in the pan, Most people who have had long careers in writing and been steady writers for decades, they have almost always written. I mean, you may have your first book published, but that doesn't mean it's going to really turn anything on. By the time you get to book 10, you have a lot better idea of what you're doing. And that isn't just my advice. That's actually built on the advice of a lot of, as I said, authors who've been around for a long time and had long careers. Award-winning author Isabella Maldonado wore a gun and a badge for two decades before turning her talents to writing about crime rather than chasing criminals. And her thriller The Cipher, the first book in her series featuring FBI agent Nina Guerra, is currently in development with Netflix, starring Jennifer Lopez. I started by asking Isabella about her life as a police officer and how she transitioned to writing crime thrillers. Yeah, it is very, very exciting. What happened is that like right after The Cipher came out, which is the first book in the Nina Guerrera series, Hollywood called. (laughs) It's it's a good way to put it. And uh, actually, there was interest from several different studios. And so I, I have a literary agent out of New York and then had to get a Hollywood agent and then brokered a deal. And what ended up happening is Jennifer Lopez has her own production company, New Yorican Productions. And she teamed up with Netflix and they came in with just the strongest deal. They did a really great job. And so we went with that. And so it's very, very exciting. It's going to be really wonderful to see my book come to life in that way. Yes. Now I can imagine, I can believe why she would be attracted to the story because I don't know if she'll be playing the main role as well, but it is a wonderful main role for a Latina actress, isn't it? She is going to star in it. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, she will. She's going to produce and she's going to star. And what they're going to do is they're just going to make changes 
People who have read the book will know that the lead character is 27 years old. So they're just going to make changes. The character will be more age appropriate. I love reading thrillers as much as the next person. But I think that today's more modern thrillers are bringing in more of an emotional component. I've noticed that. And so I wanted to have like a fully developed character arc where the reader goes with the character on, first of all, a physical journey that is extremely tough, but also an emotional journey. And it seems like it's resonating with readers. They're really enjoying the dual level. I wanted to include a social media component in there. Just from my own experience in law enforcement, the public do sometimes get heavily involved in a case, especially a headline-grabbing case, it can really be nightmarish at times to work a case and have the public also talking about it and trading information and gossip about it. But it's no longer just gossip around town. It's gossip all over the internet. And I wanted to put that forward. And people, they do get sucked in. And I wanted to show the effect that had on the investigation for the FBI agents. There's an element of romance or possible romance in the cipher, and Isabella has some interesting things to say about a female police officer's social life or lack of it. It was very hard to even have a regular schedule to have a social life. And then when I would finally meet a guy and go on a date, a lot of these guys, they were either very intimidated dating a female police officer. They felt like, I don't know, maybe their masculinity was being challenged in some way, even though I didn't do that overtly by any intention. Or some of them were incredibly overly fascinated. Like they really, really got excited about the idea that I had a gun and that I had a badge and, you know, whatever. And that I could shoot and that I had some takedown moves. And it was just a little too fascinated with my weaponry and stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, this isn't right. So a lot of the women that I know, at least back in those days, it's probably different now, ended up marrying, if they did get married, they ended up marrying other law enforcement officers only because it was kind of a challenge. Some didn't, but it was often a challenge. And so that did happen. And that did happen to me. I knew that you were now very happily raising a son. And I was quite curious, maybe did you marry a police officer or not? You know, that kind of thing. I did. I did. (laughs) I did. (laughs) Andy Stryker is an award-winning mystery author whose latest book, Split City, features identical twins who are also former pro bowling champs. When one of them is called upon by a small Midwest town sheriff, to identify the other's body in the morgue, as you can imagine, all hell breaks loose. Andy and I began by settling the question of how much personal biography is involved in Split City's backstory. I grew up in upstate New York, which is where this book is set. It's not autobiographical in any way, but I am an identical twin to start off. And when I was young, my mother and father took my identical twin and I, bowling almost every Sunday after church. It was kind of a rig. My parents were both bowlers, both bowled in leagues. That changed a little bit when we got into our teens. That kind of fell away. But it was a part of my childhood that was a cherished memory. And when the pandemic started uh, a couple of years ago, I was hard at work on more of a how would I call it? An international thriller. I actually co-authored with another gentleman. 
And I called him up and I said, I need to take a break from this book. It's just too close to reality with everything going on right now. And the part of the reason I wanted to do that is that I just felt this need to tell this story. This idea came into my head. I wanted to do a traditional mystery that was based character-wise on reality. And it is set in an actual area, Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, where I'm from. But the town itself, the county, Partridge-Berry County, Twin Straits, of course, none of that exists. It was actually great therapy for me to write this book. It's been great fun. So it was a tonic for you getting through the pandemic. Is that how you see it? Yeah, yeah. And I guess I needed something that was just an escape. And I can't help but wonder if many readers are sometimes in the same boat these days. We have so much drama going on. All we got to do is turn on our television or click to our internet. It's splashed into our faces everywhere, it seems. And sometimes I just want to sit with it, whether it be a physical book or an ebook. I can go either way myself. I know some people feel strongly either one or the other, but just to be able to escape, just to say, okay, I'm in a different world now and I'm enjoying these characters. I want to know more about them. I want to have fun with them. And especially I'm enjoying the narrative voice and whatever is going on. Sure. Now, I'm talking to you from New Zealand, as many of our listeners do understand. And in New Zealand, when we talk about bowls, the thing that comes to mind is lawn bowls and older people playing bowls outside on very smooth greens, all dressed in white, almost uniforms, white costumes like the cricketers use. But it's not... Mm -hmm. Those sort of bowls you're talking about at all, is it? I don't know if you even have those sort of bowls in the States. It's a different sort of bowling entirely. So tell us a bit about the bowling in this book. Yeah, this book, it's American 10-pin bowling. That's the majority of the bowling alleys in this country. And Billy Gills, who is the protagonist in the book, is a former pro. He's pretty much washed up, except he occasionally tries to get into a tournament. And he runs the bowling alley, which is Split City. And so I tell people in a nutshell to describe this book, I like to think of it as Agatha Christie meets the Big Lebowski, if you're familiar with that, (laughs) and also meets Cheers. I know that dates me a little bit, but I wanted it to create a sense of community, a place where people come together. And so in this book, there is a local church, and then they meet once a month in the bowling alley. They have an event, and they actually bring people in from out of town and other areas for a recreational thing. And it's a fellowship. There's a little talk, essentially, and that's known as Jesus Spare. So that's where my idea for the mystery series is that, okay, all of these stories, because this is a small town, it's not like there are murders that happen every day, but all of these stories will in some way be related to those events that happen, you know, whether it's people from out of town or people from other in the region there that that come for this event. Yeah, so that's the idea behind it. Professional bowling was in its heyday back 30, 40 years ago, and it's not so much anymore, but it's made something of a comeback. The PBA, as it's known, is still quite popular, and particularly in the Midwest of the United States, but it's mostly recreational. Families, people getting together. There are leagues and so forth that are formed. They're nowhere near as popular as they were back in my parents' day, and there's actually quite a good... um, nonfiction, a serious book by a sociologist that came out about 20 years ago called Bowling Alone. He documents the restructuring of American community and he uses the bowling leagues as a metaphor of analysis of that because 
Back in my parents' day, a much larger percentage of people were involved in these leagues, and that fell off quite dramatically in the 80s and 90s. And he saw that as an indication of changes in community. What I'm looking to do with this book is to, I guess, in some ways, resurrect that feel that I got from my childhood of a community where people in a small town come together. Yeah, that's interesting. More recent events indicate that the community is not so glued together as it was when you were growing up. Your book takes us back to a time when the community was more glued together, but this book that you mentioned, Bowling Alone, Mm. indicates that perhaps the decline in popularity was because communities became less cohesive. Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, I think it's to the point now where, and part of this, of course, is due to social media and some of the technology we're using right now, there are people that live in suburban neighborhoods that don't even know their neighbors, for example. Yeah. And, and of course, that, that would not have been the case back in my parents' day. So this book doesn't put its head in the sand to not recognize that. Of course, it's modern day, there's technology and so forth, but it is in a small town. And some of the characters are quite different and <laughs> there's some different things going on. And that's something that I've had a lot of fun too. And I'm looking forward myself to seeing these characters evolve and getting to know them a little better. There is a very humorous tone to it. And you're saying about bowls being a sport. You mentioned a sport there, which I had never heard of and which at the beginning I thought he must be joking. What extreme ironing as a sport. Now I looked it up and it really (laughs) does exist. Tell us about that. (laughs) Well, I don't know that all that much about it, but I should say this is sort of inside baseball. My identical twin brother is an economist, okay? So he has a PhD in economics. He's a very prestigious executive with one of the big banks here in America. And he's nothing, I wanted to make this character nothing like him, okay? Once they both leave professional bowling, Billy and Bo actually leaves early, prematurely, because he has an idea for these strange, funky bowling shoes. And they take off. They're known as Treadbows. They become the Air Jordan sneakers of the bowling world. And his Treadbow shoes become this big thing. He's also very quirky and very different. He travels a lot. He's a little bit of a womanizer. And, but he also does some strange things, one of which is extreme ironing. People can look it up on the internet. It's the phenomenon, sort of as a prank, sort of as a sport, they will attempt to iron a shirt, for example, on an ironing board while standing on their head or riding on horseback or standing on the edge of a cliff, climbing a mountain or whatever you can think of. It's a thing. The book opens with a very graphic scene of Billy being asked to go to the morgue by the local sheriff to identify a body that the sheriff thinks is his brother. And because they're identical twins, of course, that has a special poignancy. I don't think there's anybody who wouldn't identify with that scene and feel for Billy. We won't let on what actually happens, but what inspired you to open the book that way? That's just the first thought that occurred to me when I had the idea for the book. I didn't know where it was going to go or how it was going to end up. At first, I thought it might go in one direction and it ended up going in a completely different direction to my surprise. But I thought it was a good way to open a mystery right up front with something that was unusual and something also that on an emotional level, I personally could relate to because I could imagine myself 
being called to such a place and looking down at a body that looks like myself. I tried to capture that as well as I could to give readers a sense of what it's like to be a twin, you know, to actually see someone else in the flesh who looks like you. Yeah. Even at my age now, and, and I have a couple of grandchildren, even at my age, my twin and I talk all the time. We don't see each other physically as often as I would like, especially since the pandemic. But, you know, we talk usually two or three times a week. But in any event, even just hearing his voice or seeing his face on a screen or whatever it might be, it's hard for me to communicate with people what that feeling is like. But I I wanted to try to do that as best I could with this dramatic scene. That's it. The first part of the Joys of Binge Readings Best of 2022. In two weeks' time, we'll post the next episode, the seven shows that topped the year. And don't forget our usual reminder, if you enjoyed what you heard, leave us a review so others will find us too. That's it for today. Happy holidays and keep on reading and listening. Bye. Bye.